Hello, and welcome back to Troy and the Trojan War. Today we have several special treats for you. First of all, we get our first combat scene, which is very exciting. We are going to have a lot of them before this book is over, that's for sure. Um, but I should also definitely stress and point out that it's really significant that Homer starts all of the combat, starts all of the, the big epic battle scenes with a really very intimate combat scene. Uh, just between the two characters, with all of the sort of dynamism and all of the action very clearly laid out. Um, I think this is actually quite intentional on Homer's part, to sort of ramp his way into the bigger battle scenes. Because um, by the end of this section, we do get an out-and-out, straight-up battle scene, and it's hard to keep track of. You've got multiple characters, most of whom we haven't even heard named before, unless they showed up on the list of ships, um, all flinging spears at each other and getting killed in, like, gruesome and horrible ways, and, you know, there's just a lot of movement, a lot of action, and it's, it's difficult to keep track of. Um, what's really interesting about this particular duel between Paris and Menelaus is that it introduces us to the form of warfare as we're going to get it in this novel, but it does so slowly, it does so on a level that we can understand right at the outset, and it very much shows all the, dynam the dynamics, the mechanics of battle as Homer is depicting it here. Um, so we're going to look at that duel scene really closely, but there's a lot of stuff that we have to talk about before we can even get to it. Um, this is also the first opportunity we've had to see the Trojan line. Um, up until now, we've been hanging out exclusively with the Greeks, predominantly Achilles and Agamemnon. We've been hanging out with the gods and seeing what it looks like behind you know, the veil of Olympus. Um, but here we actually pivot. And now we are, our camera, so to speak, is positioned behind Paris and Hector and Priam and Helen and all of the folks on the, the Trojan side. And I want us to not, like, overlook the fact that Homer, Homer is not presenting them as villains here. Um, you know, it, it's fairly normal in contemporary literature and cinema and art in general for us to sort of get a good look at what's going on behind the lines of the villains. You know, in Star Wars, you've got, like, council meetings with important imperial generals, and, you know, in The Count of Monte Cristo, you get to see what all of the various villainous figures are doing at various times. Um, in Die Hard, you get to see what all, like, the terrorists are doing. All of this is, is fairly normal, but what I want to emphasize here is that the villainy of the Trojans isn't really villainy. Um, as probably could be anticipated at this point, based on just what we're seeing between Agamemnon and Achilles, Homer characterizes the Trojans every bit as richly as the Greeks, and if anything, he presents them in a more positive light more often than not. Um, so let's start with the two Trojans that we very much get our, our early glimpse of, namely Paris and Hector. Um, now Paris, Paris is trouble. We all know this going into this story. Every Greek who, who listens to the Iliad is going to be aware of how much trouble Paris actually is. The fact that he is the direct cause of the Trojan War. Like, as much as Helen is going to get, you know, a lot of the flack for this, and Homer does not ignore that, like, we'll talk about Helen in her own time, Paris is 
kind of the worst insofar as he is the one who very deliberately abducts Helen with the help of the gods and starts this whole war off in earnest. Um, he is guilty in a way that just about all the other Trojans are not. Um, but it's also significant that the Trojans know this, and they hate him for it. At the very least, notice that Hector is really mad at Paris over this. Um, but it's also worth noting that in this scene we get a more positive view of Paris than we often will in other scenes. Like, on the one hand, Hector is quick to insult him, on the other, well, let's just look at the text. So the setup is pretty straightforward. The two armies are all mustered, they're all sitting on the battlefield, and now Tr Paris himself comes out, steps out from the Trojan ranks, this is line uh, 22, leopard skin on his shoulders, curved bow, sword, and shaking two bronze-tipped spears at the Greeks, he invited their best to fight him to the death. So they get a challenge. Paris steps out from the Trojan ranks and declares, I will fight whatever champion you present, winner take all. Um, and of course, it's Menelaus who takes him up on this. When Menelaus, who was Ares' darling, saw him strutting out from the ranks, he felt as a lion must feel when he finds the carcass of a stag or wild goat and, half-starving, consumes it greedily even though hounds and hunters are swarming down on him. Notice the way that uh, this is characterized here with the epic metaphor or the epic simile. Menelaus is like, oh, Paris is going to challenge people? Now is my moment. Because Menelaus can take Paris. Like, as we'll see, Paris is not a strong fighter. He is a hot guy with nothing behind the good looks, as Hector will very much emphasize. And Menelaus, remember, is Helen's true husband. Um, he's the king of Sparta, he married Helen, this was the agreement that was made when Helen was married off. Paris has personally slighted him. So for Menelaus to get the opportunity to take it out on Paris right here, right now, no wonder he is, like, gloating over this, as a lion feels when he finds the carcass of a stag or wild goat. Like, he's reveling in this opportunity. He is excited to wreck Paris finally avenge himself on the Trojans and set everything back to rights. But notice, Paris isn't quite so enthusiastic once he realizes who is going to take up him up on his offer. It was Paris, all right, who could have passed for a god, and Menelaus grinned as he hefted his gear and stepped down from his chariot. He would have his revenge at last. Paris's blood turned milky when he saw him coming on, and, and he faded back into the Trojan troops with cheeks as pale as if he had seen, had almost stepped on, a poisonous snake in a mountain pass. He could barely stand as disdainful Trojans made room for him in the ranks, and Hector, seeing his brother tremble at Atreus' son, started in on him with these abusive epithets. So notice Paris is like, yeah, I'll take whoever you throw at me, and the person who is most appropriate, the most appropriate person for him to theoretically fight, the guy who he literally wronged in this war based on a grudge match between these two, you know, these two men vying over the hand of this one woman, Menelaus steps out and Paris is like, shit, nope, nope, don't want any of this. And Hector is absolutely right to insult him. Notice that, like, as soon as Paris is like, oh, never mind, I'm gonna go hide from the army now. Like, everybody is so mad at him. Paris is all talk here. 
He shows up, he's like, yeah, I'll take anyone when literally the person who is most appropriate to fight him shows up. He's like, never mind, I would prefer not to do that. I would rather not mix it up with someone who actually knows how to fight. So he fades back into the ranks, and Hector absolutely tears him a new one here. Paris, you desperate, womanizing, pretty boy, I wish you had never been born, or had died unmarried. Better that than this disgrace before the troops. Can't you just hear it, the long-haired Greeks chuckling and saying that our champion wins for good looks but comes up short on offense and defense? Is this how you were when you got up a crew and sailed overseas, hobnobbed with the warrior cast in a foreign country and sailed off with a beautiful woman with marriage ties to half of them? You're nothing but trouble for your father and your city, a joke to your enemies and an embarrassment to yourself. No, don't stand up to Menelaus. You might find out what kind of man it was whose wife you're sleeping with. You think your lyre will help you? Or Aphrodite's gifts, your hair and your pretty face, when you sprawl in the dust? It's the Trojans who are cowards, or you'd have long since been dressed out in stones for all the harm you've done. Like, remember that Hector and Paris are actually related here. They're both children directly or indirectly, of Priam, the king of Troy. But Hector, Hector does not like Paris at all. And there are reasons for this, reasons that will become abundantly clear the more we learn about these two characters. But notice, Paris isn't behaving well here. He's a coward. He is full of talk, he's good-looking, he has caused this war that he is not willing himself to stand up and fight. And Hector is pissed off about this. Um, womanizing pretty boy, he calls him. You know, do you think your lyre will help you, or Aphrodite's gifts? You're more attractive than you are strong. You're nothing in battle, you just look good and talk good while doing it. And Hector even brings up, you know, he walks Paris through the rape of Helen just to begin with. Is this how you were when you got up a crew and sailed overseas? You know, he brings back the whole image here, which, remember, this is Homer, we haven't encountered this yet in the actual myth. So on the one hand, this serves a function storytelling-wise, like Homer is filling in the gaps of this story that we don't have, but also notice that it very clearly shows Paris and Hector's character here and their relationship. Paris is a good-looking coward who is useless in battle and is not able to finish what he starts, Hector is all business here. And notice exactly how Hector insults him and questions him, especially in the early part of this, of this speech. Can't you just hear it, the long-haired Greeks chuckling and saying that our champion wins for good looks but comes up short on offense and defense? Hector is very concerned with his reputation. And he, you know, challenges him again here. You're nothing but trouble for your father and your city, a joke to your enemies and an embarrassment to yourself. Hector specifically charges Paris with not being self-aware, with being with acting dishonorably. Um, this is because Hector himself is very concerned with honor, as we'll see. Hector very much cares about his reputation with his father, with his family, and with his enemies, for that matter. Like, notice, you're a joke to your enemies, he says. He is. Paris is absolutely a joke. He is absolutely the punchline of this cosmic, you know, joke that's been played on both the Greeks and the Trojans here. Paris is the worst. He is just a pretty face. He does not have any substance to him. But the weird thing is how Paris responds. 
Paris, handsome as a god, answered him, That's only just, Hector. You've got a mind like an axe, you know, always sharp, making the skilled cut through a ship's beam. Multiplying force, nothing ever turns your edge. But don't throw golden Aphrodite's gifts in my face. We don't get to choose what the gods give us, you know, and we can't just toss their gifts aside. So all right, if you want me to fight, fine. Have the Trojans and the Greeks sit down, and Menelaus and I will square off in the middle to fight for Helen and all her possessions, winner take all. And everyone else will swear oaths of friendship, you all to live here in the fertile Troad, and they to go back to Bluegrass Argos and Achaia with its beautiful women. Notice, Paris is kind of okay with this. Like, this is not the reaction that I ever expect from Paris, but it is consistently the way that he does, in fact, respond. Paris is, despite his total cowardice when it comes to actually sitting down in battle and, like, fighting somebody, he's unflappable. Like, Hector can insult this guy until the cows come home, and Paris is like, eh, yeah, I guess you're right. I am the worst. Um, which is weird. For the Greeks especially, you'll notice that a lot of the characters spend a lot of time insulting each other, um, both like on their own side and across enemy lines. The Trojans will frequently insult the Greeks in order to sort of like incite them to, to fight. The Greeks will frequently insult one another, like we see Agamemnon insulting his own ranks in order to sort of like spur them into battle. It's really unusual when you see a character who just lies down and takes those insults, who doesn't respond in kind. You know, we saw Achilles and, and Agamemnon spitting insults at each other. You dog face, you're always leading from the rear, you refuse to actually do any of your own dirty work. Well, you actually like fighting in war, you bloodthirsty monster. Like, this is pretty typical of the way these guys interact. And it is always guys. Um, Paris and Hector have a similar dynamic. Hector insults Paris, but where Paris would be expected to reciprocate, well, you, Hector, you're just a muscle-bound muscle idiot. Like, he doesn't. Nope, you're right. I'm totally the worst. I'm totally just a pretty face. Like, the one thing that he says to defend himself is, you know, don't get mad at me because I'm handsome. Like, I can't help being handsome. I'm just so handsome. Like, what are you going to do about it? Um, which is itself kind of really annoying. <laughs> like, why would you point this particular thing out? Why would you evade responsibility even for that? Um, but nonetheless, what Hector is stressing here is, you know, like, Paris is not willing to behave like a warrior. He is not willing to stand up and defend himself. He is not willing to take responsibility for his actions. The most Paris is ever going to do is be like, yeah, I'm the worst. I guess I'm going to go back to my room and sleep with Helen some more. Like, if you're really that bad, if you really are the worst, if you really accept that I'm, you know, saying true things about you, why won't you fight? Why won't you fix it? Paris, in accepting the insults, is in fact rejecting responsibility, avoiding his role in this whole business. Fortunately here, he actually does accept it. He does agree, I will fight, and we'll make this deal, and whoever wins, wins. And that's the end of the war. Like, if Menelaus wins, they get Helen, and the Greeks will go home. If I win, then the Greeks will leave, and we all agree that that's the end of the war. And Hector 
appreciates this. Like, Hector liked what he heard, is the very next line on, on line 80. He went out in front of the Trojan, uh, went out in front along the Trojan ranks, holding a spear broadside, making them all sit down. Greek archers and slingers were taking aim at him and already starting to shoot arrows and stones when Agamemnon boomed out a command for them to hold their fire. Hector was signaling that he had something to say, and his helmet caught the morning sun as he addressed both armies. Listen to me, Trojans, and you warriors from Greece. Paris, on account of whom this war began, says this. He wants all the Trojan and Greek combatants to lay their weapons down on the ground. He and Menelaus will square off in the middle and fight for Helen and all her possessions. Winner take all. And everyone else swears oaths of friendship. Now notice, Hector repeats Paris's words pretty much verbatim here. Um, this is another thing that you'll find pretty frequently in the Iliad. Like, again, as part of those formulas that we talked about last week, um, Homer will frequently just recite verbatim what one character says when another character conveys that message or repeats it. Um, probably because it's just easier than having the character, like, rephrase it every time, especially when it's so close to the original language. Um, but also it sort of sets up this inherent repetition in the poem itself. Like, it drives home, hey, this is a really important plot point. We've decided this is it, winner take all. And Paris says it first, Hector says it again, and the audience is primed. Okay, this is a big deal. Like, we definitely need to know the rules of this conflict in order to appreciate the stakes that are about to take place. Um, but, as much as this is this, like, really big moment, like, oh shit, everyone's going to decide how the war comes out in this confrontation, you'll notice that it gets very much derailed. First, because of the sacrifice. Like, before they're willing to have this duel between Menelaus and Paris, which admittedly both, like, Paris and Menelaus have agreed to, Paris begrudgingly Menelaus, because he just wants Paris's blood at this point, um, we all stop. And we gotta go get sacrifices. We gotta get a white lamb and a black lamb, and we gotta go like go back to the ships, and you know, generals are making preparations on both sides. You might wonder why. Why are we, you know, sitting here in this battle, like everything is ready to go? Why are the you know, we just got Paris to agree to this. He could like turn tail and run at any moment. Why are we stalling? And I wanna emphasize the sacrifice and the formalities surrounding sacrifice is really important to the Greeks. Like, we've already seen this in Chapter 1, where, like, we have this big sacrifice to Apollo in order to appease him and prevent the plague from spreading. Like, you should get a pretty good sense of it just from that. But here we get another long sacrifice description. Like, everybody's stopping everything, going and getting sacrifices. Like, after the discussion between Helen and Priam, we come back to it, and we've got more sacrifice talk. Um, this is a big deal to them. And we'll talk about exactly why in its own time. Um, suffice it to say that it this relationship to the gods, this sort of recognition that everything we're doing is in the eyes of the gods and needs to respect the gods and, you know, recognize the gods' influence here, is going to absolutely pervade this story. We are going to see everybody stop and sacrifice many, many times over the course of this, of this book. Um, many, many times before even seemingly trivial stuff, there will be these sorts of sacrifices. Um, but... And I want to emphasize this. They're not always all that helpful. Notice, you know, for all of the business here, for all of the effort that is made, first here in, 
like line 100 to 120 or 150 or so, you know, we've got a lot of sacrifice talk. Then we finally get the, the heralds come back with the victims around line 245. And then we get this whole speech, like, Rise, son of Laomedon, the best men of Troy and Achaea summon you down to the plain to swear solemn oaths. Paris and Menelaus will fight a duel for the woman, and she will follow the winner with all her possessions. So on and so forth. Um, we get the heralds bring the animals, they mix the wine, they pour the wine over the king's hands. There's this actual, like, killing of the animals. And then, you know, we get, like... Agamemnon talking to Zeus and to Helios and to all the gods. They kill the, the rams and they like fill their cups and they drink and they pour out libations and all this stuff happens. Like we get passage after passage after passage, like page after page of this stuff. And notice, and Lombardo always emphasizes this when it happens, line 325-ish, but Zeus would not fulfill their prayers. This is a big difference from what we saw with the sacrifice to Apollo. Like, when, in fact, they sacrifice to Apollo, we get this whole business about, you know, they perform all the sacrifices, and Apollo is pleased. They're happy. Like, Apollo is propitiated. He stops the plague. And Apollo is pretty reasonable. Like, we get this sort of positive sacrifice reaction from him, even though Apollo was on the Trojan side, for sure. Like, Apollo definitely favors the Trojans over the Greeks throughout the book. Um, so, here, where they appeal to Zeus, notice that Zeus, not interested. As much as all of this sacrifice, all of this ritual, tradition, is sort of like brought in to emphasize the importance of this duel, Zeus is like, I don't care. And this is also really significant. Like, notice that for all of these sacrifices, so far they've only got a 50% chance of actually being all that successful. Apollo did hear them, but Zeus did not. Because Zeus has his own agenda. Zeus has already made an arrangement with Thetis. Zeus has specifically, like, tricked everyone into participating in this battle so he can screw over the Greeks, so he can honor Achilles. Remember, like, back in Book 2, we've been explicitly told that the whole conflict today is the result of Agamemnon's dream, which was itself a lie fabricated by Zeus to deceive him into causing all of this havoc. This is all nonsense as far as the gods are concerned. This is not going to decide the outcome of the conflict. Zeus knows this. The gods know this. To some degree, probably a decent number of the humans standing on the field know this. But they go through the motions in the hopes that maybe they can get out of this situation anyway. Maybe they can actually overcome fate in some sense. And it doesn't matter. Zeus refuses to hear them. Which is all the more strange, because in a moment, like, in Book 4, the whole thing's ruined. Like, obviously the duel itself is a fiasco, Paris manages to get, like, spirited away by Aphrodite, so it's kind of inconclusive. On the one hand, everybody's like, well, you know, Menelaus actually won the duel, so really, I guess the Greeks won, and therefore the Greeks should be able to take everything that we said. But, on the other hand, like, nobody died, so does it really count? And they're all, like, sitting around scratching their heads trying to figure this out, when, in fact, the duel is broken. Like, the whole truce that surrounded this conflict is ended when one of the Trojan soldiers shoots at Menelaus, like, breaking the whole thing down. They take an opportunistic shot, and oops, 
And notice that Agamemnon's reaction is, the gods will be mad about this. He expects retribution. This is on page 70, this is book 4, line 170-ish. Um, he's, Agamemnon goes up to Menelaus, who has been wounded, albeit like fairly superficially, by this arrow, and he says, Dear brother, my oath was your death, setting you up to fight the Trojans for us, and now they've trampled their oath and hit you. But oaths are not empty. We pledged lamb's blood, poured strong wine, and clasped our right hands. If the Olympian does not act on this immediately, he will, in good time, and they will pay heavily with their heads, their wives, and their children. Deep down inside, I know this for sure. There will come a day when Holy Troy will perish, and Priam and the people under Priam's ashen spear. Zeus himself, throned in heaven on high, will shake his dark aegis over them all in his wrath for this treachery. This shall be done. Now let's take a step back from this. Notice Agamemnon is confident, 100% like confident that Zeus is going to inflict retribution on whichever Trojan troop did the deed, namely Pandarus, who we know and he does not, but also on the Trojans generally. Like, he takes this as an opportunity to get fairly poetic about, you know, one day Troy will fall, Priam will die, Zeus will shake his aegis over all of them. This is guaranteed. This is what the penalty is for their treachery, for betraying this sacred truce that we had conducted here with all this ceremony and all this ritual and the killing animals and the whole shebang. Like, Agamemnon is 100% confident that this is the case. But are we? Like, we literally just saw Zeus shoot down the offering. We should definitely emphasize that Pandarus didn't shoot Menelaus just sort of out of his own free will. Like, Athena is the one who breaks it off. There's this whole conversation at the beginning of the Iliad 4 where Zeus is talking to Athena and Hera, and he's like, hey, are we going to let this be it? Like, it, they've made this agreement. Are we going to actually shut down the war at this point? Zeus asks, uh, well, Menelaus has a pair of goddesses to help him, Hera of Argos and Athena the Defender, but they prefer to sit on the sidelines, enjoying themselves. Aphrodite now, smiling as always, stays with her hero and manages to stave off her doom. Did you see how she saved him just now when it looked like he was about to die? Still, Menelaus, Ares' favorite, clearly won. But we should decide all this now. Should we let war rage again or establish peace between the two sides? Zeus is apparently considering this. Like, the Greeks made this arrangement, they all decided, winner take all, Zeus is okay with this, he's like, hey, are we done here? Can we go home? Like, Menelaus clearly won, do the Greeks win? Do we make them give Helen back? And notice Hera's response. Awesome son of Kronos, what a thing to say, how dare you undo all my hard work. The sweat I sweated driving my poor team to raise an army against Priam and his sons. Do it, but don't expect us all to approve. What? Why is Hera... Why is... Like, what is the motivation here? Yeah, you would think that Hera would be happy about this possibility. You know, Menelaus is given the win here. Like, Zeus is saying, hey... What should, we should count this, right? Like, they made the rules, they made the agreement, Menelaus is clearly the, the one who got the upper hand here, Paris was no competitor with him, so, you know, we're done, Greeks win, everybody goes home, and Hera's like, oh, hell no. 
Absolutely not. Hera is Team Greece all the way, but this is not the kind of victory she's into. She considers this a violation. How dare you undo all my hard work? We are going to mess up the Trojans. No survivors. If Priam's head isn't sitting on a pike at the end of this, I am not satisfied. Now, some of this is definitely Hera being vindictive. And this is typical. Like, we're going to see Hera be vindictive a lot. Like, in Greek mythology, it's every other moment that Hera's getting mad at somebody over some slight that she sees. Like, the entire story of, the, of Jason and the Argonauts. Jason, the heroic leader of the Argo, who brings, like, dozens of heroes on his quest to find the Golden Fleece, is all because Hera wants to screw over the king, who is Jason's uncle, by having Jason kill him. Like, the entire thing is just this incredibly elaborate Rube Goldberg machine plot in order to get back at this dude who slighted Hera. This happens all the time in Greek mythology. But notice, Hera's being more than just petty and vindictive here. How dare you undo all my hard work? Hera's vindictiveness definitely extends to the reason why she's doing all this. The fact that Priam had... Priam and Priam's family, namely Paris, has slighted her, and therefore she's going to take it out on every last one of them. But notice that this is work for her. Setting up all of this conflict, like driving her heroes to kill Trojans, this is all effort for Hera. Work. This is all something that she's been working on for a long time, and Zeus... Having the Greeks win in a bloodless duel of champions would be undoing that work. No, Hera wants to see Troy burn. And Hera will not rest until Troy is burning. Which, you know, Zeus himself is kind of bummed about this. Like he says a little while later, possibly betraying his own preference for the Trojan side, of all the cities on earth that men inhabit, sacred Ilion is the dearest to my soul, and Priam and the people of Ash and Spear Priam, my altar there has never lacked libations or the steamy savor that is our due worship. Like, Zeus is soft on the Trojans. He likes them. He wants them to succeed. They have always been faithful to the gods. They have always done the right thing here. And notice, there's no evidence that this is not true. Like, even Paris stealing Helen was God-approved. But the gods disagree with each other. They have fights with each other. They have their own petty arrangements and their own backdoor agendas. They all have their own squabbles that they're engaged in. And humans are just very much caught up in this. As much as Agamemnon is convinced that Zeus is going to take retribution on the Trojans for what they've done, Agamemnon doesn't see the bigger picture here. He doesn't recognize that Zeus has already made an agreement with Thetis, and that's the only reason the Trojans are winning these days, and that Zeus is also well aware of the fact that he likes the Trojans better. Like, he doesn't really care about what the Greeks want. Agamemnon is convinced that this violation of the truce is somehow totally independent of sides. That it doesn't matter whether you are Greek or Trojan, whether the gods like you or dislike you, Zeus has to pay attention to this major breach of conduct. But does he? Does he even care? Does that even come up for him? He doesn't seem terribly upset, and it's even the gods who caused the misconduct in the first place. 
It's Athena who convinces Pandarus to fire the arrow that wounds Menelaus and breaks the truce. The gods themselves break the truce that the mortals have created. I want to emphasize this. Because on the one hand, you know, in the last couple of sections, we've definitely seen people worshipping and honoring the gods, and Agamemnon does this here. But the gods aren't faithful. The gods don't behave well. The gods frequently cheat, betray each other, betray the mortals. It's not clear that Zeus is going to follow through on this retribution, that Zeus will hold the Trojans responsible for this breach. Now, it's true what Agamemnon says. Troy will fall. But it's not clear why. It's not clear that they were sinners in some sense. Because for all intents and purposes, it looks like they're faithful. They are pious. They're doing the right thing. Pandarus only fires the arrow because Athena, who is a double agent on the Greek side, encourages him to do it. It's not fair. Which brings us back to that idea of fate, which is very much hanging over this entire poem and is very clear here in this passage. Fate is ruling them all in this sense. The gods have total power over the situation, are manipulating the mortals into doing various things, and the mortals themselves are just cowed and submitting to this, unwillingly and unwittingly. They have no idea the mechanics that are going on behind the scenes. But let's jump back, because we're getting ahead of ourselves here. There is an even more obvious example we have yet to get to, which will really drive this point home. But first we need to talk about Helen and Priam. So, you know, the setup is pretty clear here. Paris is challenged champion. Menelaus comes out to accept the challenge. Hector sort of, like, berates Paris into actually following through with this. And then everything stops while we go to get sacrifices. Now, during that time, we get a snapshot of what's going on inside the city between Helen and Priam. So, apparently, this is largely because Iris is going to talk to Helen. Iris is the messenger of the gods. She's frequently the one communicating messages from the gods to mortals or vice versa or whatever. Whatever the case may be, Iris disguises herself, shows up to Helen, and emphasizes that Helen needs to get out and watch Paris and Menelaus fight. And this is apparently enough to get Helen up and, up and moving. Now, I should emphasize that women don't have a terribly prominent role in Greek culture, like we talked about last time. You know, they're frequently objects, they're frequently second-class citizens, they're frequently just, like, wives and mothers and, you know, have family responsibilities but very little in the way of, like, interactions. Helen coming out of her tower and, like, going to look at what's going on on the battlefield is unusual um, from the Greek perspective. This implies a certain amount of liberality on her part, um, she would not normally be allowed to do such things. Um, but nonetheless, we need to sort of follow Homer's track here. Like, Homer doesn't seem to think that this is too terribly unusual, so neither should we, in all likelihood. But what is unusual is what Helen says and thinks and does here. Notice, Iris starts, like, she says, you know, the Paris and Menelaus are going to fight, a duel with lances and the winner will, like, claim to you as his beloved wife, which is obviously something that would interest Helen. Like, literally the outcome of this fight will decide who gets to go home with you is kind of a big deal for a woman who's very much caught in the middle. But notice Helen's response. 
The goddess's words turned Helen's mind into a sweet mist of desire for her former husband, her parents, and her city. She dressed herself in fine silvery linens and came out of her bedroom crying softly. Helen is apparently not on board with being Paris's wife. Notice that her the first glimpse we get of her here is missing Menelaus. Now, that's different. Traditions about Helen throughout Greek mythology are very divisive and like like all over the place as far as their portrayal of her. Um, you'll notice in Apollodorus, Helen is basically just the worst, and she is totally disloyal to Menelaus, and there's no reason to think that she's sympathetic or at all anything more than an object in this whole business. But for Homer, Helen has depth. There is character behind her pretty face. She has substance in a way that isn't entirely apparent in many other traditions. Like, later on in the semester, we're going to be reading a play of Euripides where he depicts Helen among the Trojan women, and Helen is just the worst. She is a straight-up, stone-cold bitch, and she does not care about any of her actions or any of the havoc that she's caused, and she even seems to be gloating a little bit in how awful things have become on account of her beauty. But the Helen of Homer is a very different person entirely. Notice that when she, in fact, addresses Priam, um, her behavior is, if anything, remorseful. She is ashamed of herself. So let's walk through this passage a bit. This is on page 55. The Trojan elders are sitting on the tower by the western gate. These are the guys who are too old to fight. They provide good advice. They're serving as counselors for Priam and probably strategists in their own right, but they're out of the fighting because they're just too old. Much like Nestor. Uh, Nestor does, in fact, like throw down in the fray. He is, in fact, in the lines of battle, but usually he, like Agamemnon, is leading from behind. This is perfectly acceptable for Nestor. He's like 90 years old or something at this point. It's perfectly acceptable for the Trojan elders. But the elders are watching Helen walk by, and we're basically seeing a construction worker scene here. Who could blame either the Trojans or Greeks for suffering so long for a woman like this? Her eyes are not human. Whatever she is, let her go back with the ships and spare us and our children a generation of pain. Like, on the one hand, they're like, damn, she's fine. She is one hot number. She is an incredibly beautiful woman. No wonder the Greeks and Trojans are willing to throw their lives away on account of her. But also notice her eyes are not human. There's something unworldly about her. Now, if you remember, Helen is technically a demigod. She is the daughter of Zeus and Leda. Um, she is, in fact, half-divine. So her beauty really is inhuman, unworldly. Um, she has Zeus's eyes, in a sense. Um, but notice, too, that final comment, I don't care send her back with the ships, and spare us the suffering. Notice that Homer gives us a kind of snapshot of a wide variety of different perspectives about Helen within the Trojan ranks. She is a divisive figure for the Trojans. On the one hand, you have people who are like, well, she's hot, she totally improves our city, we should definitely be defending her and protecting her and keeping the Greeks at bay. On the other hand, there's some discomfort. She's too beautiful. She's too attractive. She doesn't belong here or anywhere. She is a threat. She is dangerous. 
And on the other hand, you have people who are just straight up, give her back. We don't want her. She is nothing but trouble. She is absolutely more trouble than she's worth. She has brought all this destruction on our doorstep. Throw her back to the Greeks. We can't possibly hold on to her. It's just not worth it. So clearly the Trojans aren't of one mind about Helen. And we're going to see different people have different perspectives about this. We're going to see various characters interact with Helen according to these assumptions. But notice Priam's, the way that Priam interacts with her. Come here, dear child. Sit next to me so you can see your former husband and dear kinsman. You are not to blame for this war with the Greeks. The gods are. Now tell me, who is that enormous man towering over the Greek troops? Handsome, well-built. I've never laid eyes on such a fine figure of a man. He looks like a king. Notice, as much as the like people sitting on the walls gossiping about Helen have all these different perspectives, Priam treats Helen like a human being. Like a person. Like his daughter. Come here, dear child, sit next to me, so you can see your former husband and dear kinsman. He reassures her, you are not to blame for this war with the Greeks. The gods are. And on the one hand, this tells us a lot about Priam's relationship with Helen, but it also tells us a lot about Priam himself. Priam is a cool dude. Like, he is wise, he can see through all of this, Notice that he is like the one character at this point who is not blaming Helen or not blaming Paris or not upset, you know, with like various people and their petty grudges. Like Agamemnon and Achilles can't see past their own honor. Priam is able to see, yeah, this is all the gods' fault. He blames the gods. Now, this is not disrespectful. At no point is he like, those damn gods ruining it. No, he's just saying, you know, this is out of our control. Priam recognizes they are all just the pawns of fate here. Something that most of the other characters have not figured out at this point, but we have been told by Homer over and over and over again by now. Like, even this early in the book, fate is clearly in command. The gods are clearly, like, playing with these people. Priam knows this. He can see through that. He is really insightful. But notice, too, that he asks Helen to brief him on the Greeks. Like, what follows is two, three pages of Helen literally just telling him about the Greek commanders. Priam's like, who's that guy over there? And Helen's like, that's Agamemnon. He's the main general of the entire Greek forces. And Priam's like, oh, okay. And who's that guy? He looks pretty strong. Like, oh, well, that's Odysseus. He's really smart and really clever and has all these strategies and stuff. All right, well, who's that big guy? That's Ajax. Like, notice the way that this interaction works. Because this is kind of brilliant from Homer's perspective. For Priam, I have to think that he knows who the Greek commanders are at this point. Remember, the war has been going on for nine years. Priam cannot possibly not know who Agamemnon is. So if Priam isn't actually ignorant, like we, we end up in one of two situations here. Some scholars probably suspect that this is an interpolation. Like, this does not actually belong to the story, and this is a contrivance of Homer for reasons we'll talk about in a moment. Like, this probably belongs to an earlier tradition. Like, this whole scene, start to finish, from Paris, you know, declaring a duel to end the war, to, you know, Helen and Priam talking about the Greek commanders and so on, to, you know, everything else that's going on here. 
many scholars would probably argue this belongs much more likely to the beginning of the war than it does to the end of the war. The fact that Priam is ignorant of the Greek commanders indicates that this is, you know, not where this passage belongs, not where this scene belongs. In which case, Homer is just moving it around because it's convenient for his own purposes. Again, this makes a lot of sense from a storytelling standpoint. Here is an opportunity for Homer to show us all of these characters. Hey, this is Agamemnon. He is an important character. Remember him. Helen said that he is like this. Here is Odysseus. He's a really important character. Helen said this about him, and he's introduced to us this way. Likewise with Ajax. All of these characters are introduced in this way. So scholars would argue, you know, this is a great opportunity for Homer to show us the mechanics of the battlefield, show us who the major characters are. Like, we literally just got done with that huge long list of ships where everybody, like, stood up and shared for their own team, but it's pretty easy to get lost and to sort of lose the really important figures who are going to really move the plot along and get a lot of stuff done from all the random just also rands who were important because it, you know, gets the weirdos from that one backwater island to get really excited about this poem. Helen gives us an opportunity to sort of highlight these are important characters, these are their characteristics, these, this is what they're going to do in the story, remember that. And while I definitely think that that's true, I also think that Homer's inclusion of this passage at this moment, this whole scene where Prime is asking Helen, who's that guy, who's that guy, who's that guy, because it's nine years into the war, and because it's unreasonable for Prime to not know who these characters are, that sets up a different dynamic here. Priam isn't asking Helen about this because he doesn't know. Priam is asking Helen about this because he's a compassionate, sympathetic guy. Helen is in a really awkward position here for multiple reasons. Globally, like throughout the context of this poem, Helen is clearly out of her element here. She has been abducted. She's in a strange city. Half of the people here are talking about her behind her back, saying that they should just give her back to the Greeks or just, like, chuck her off the walls. Like, we literally just saw all of these people gossiping about Helen and basically making decisions about her life without her consent or control or anything. Helen also is very aware of her role in this whole business. She started this war, she is responsible for this war, she feels like shit about it, and Priam knows this. So notice, Priam is making her feel useful here. Hey, Helen, tell me who that guy is. I assume you know because you spent time with the Greeks, so you have inside information. You can be our double agent. And on the one hand, notice that Priam doesn't seem to be using this as like, all right, this intel is going to help us to destroy the Greeks utterly. No, he frames it as, so you can see your former husband and dear kinsman. He knows who Menelaus is, clearly. Or he wouldn't be able to identify him to her. He wouldn't be like, you know, hey, well, come over here and, and see your former husband Menelaus, who you apparently feel sympathetic about. Like, this is a really delicate, awkward situation. Here is Helen, basically a prisoner in this city, basically feeling this terrible guilt for causing all of these people to die, very much aware of all of these people judging her at every, you know, moment and at every opportunity. And now she is faced with, oh my gosh, Paris and Menelaus, my, the two men who I am most connected to, are about to fight, and one of them is undoubtedly going to die. 
Now, Priam, if he didn't know Helen, could very well be like, uh, maybe you should go back to your room. This is awkward. Like, no matter what happens here, Helen is probably going to be upset, emotionally compromised. Either Menelaus, her former husband, is going to die, or Paris, her current husband, is going to die. Like, whatever happens, this is probably going to be bad for Helen. And on the one hand, Paris, or Priam might very well not know who Helen prefers. Maybe she likes Menelaus and regrets coming all the way to Troy, in which case, oops, like, uh, how am I supposed to make you feel better when you hate being here? On the other hand, maybe she prefers Paris, and in all likelihood, you know, she's going to be upset if Paris dies here, and then she's going to be without any support, any friend whatsoever in the entire city. And yet, Priam assumes, correctly, that Helen feels nothing but a sort of love for everyone involved. You know, come see your former husband and dear kinsman. He recognizes, just as we saw, that Helen is feeling nostalgic, feeling homesick, regretting her move from Greece to Troy. Priam is reassuring her, comforting her, trying to help her feel useful and encouraging her to sort of open up to him a little bit. Now notice how Helen responds, though. Like, this is the first opportunity we get to see Helen speak, and we're going to see several opportunities later on in the text, and they all tend to focus on these same sort of key points here. But it's especially interesting how Homer portrays Helen here. So, let's look. This is line 178. And Helen, the sky's brightness reflected in her mortal face, reverend you are to me, dear father-in-law, a man to hold in awe. I'm so ashamed. Death should have been a sweeter evil to me than following your son here, leaving my home, my marriage, my friends, my precious daughter, that lovely time in my life. None of it was to be. And lamenting it has been my slow death. But you asked me something, and I'll answer. That man is Agamemnon, son of Atreus, etc., etc., Notice, Helen kind of hates herself. She is incredibly ashamed. She leads with that. She respects Priam. She apparently cares for him pretty deeply. Reverend you are to me, dear father-in-law, a man to hold in awe. But notice, not only is she ashamed, she's also straight-up suicidal. Death should have been a sweeter evil to me, she says, than following your son here, leaving my home. Helen wants to be back in Greece. Like, if in fact we got rid of all of the testosterone in this particular book and had, like, you know, one of those typical scenes where, like, you're trying to figure out which home the pet wants to go to, so you stand on opposite sides and, like, come here, like, you choose what which home you want to be in. You know, Helen is kind if if left to her own devices, she would absolutely pick the Greeks. No question, no contest. Like, Paris is not even close to being satisfactory to her. Handsome though he though he is. She absolutely wants to be home with Menelaus, her proper husband, and her family, her daughter, the people who she cares about. But at the same time, notice, when she in fact is talking about Agamemnon, she says, he's a great king and a strong warrior both, he was also my brother-in-law, shameless bitch that I am. Helen hates herself. Deeply. And this reflects a side of Helen that 
virtually no other Greek writer is willing to address or examine. Something that I think is really insightful on Homer's part. Like, given this character who is impossible to figure out, this character who is the focal point and the fulcrum of this entire war, Homer chooses fairly incongruously for her to be self-conscious about it and for her to be upset about it. She wishes she had never been born. Because if she had never been born, this war never would have happened, and it never would have been her fault, and all of these people never would have died, and all this suffering never would have occurred. The world would be a better place without her. And Helen acknowledges this. I wish I had never been born. Death should have been a sweeter evil to me than following your son here. I wish it had never happened. I am a shameless bitch for leaving my husband. I am so ashamed. Helen isn't just an object in this book. Like, as much as we literally just saw Briseis being passed around from character to character, Helen would be an even more logical character to do that to. Like, she is just being fought over by Menelaus and Paris, by Troy and Greece, by, you know, the gods, like, using her as a pawn in their great schemes. And this is all true. Like, she absolutely is just a pawn in the gods' schemes. She absolutely is just this object being passed around by the Greeks and Trojans. She is just an object to vir virtually all of the characters we've encountered so far, except Priam. Priam, who cares about her. Priam, who tries to help her, reassure her, make her feel useful. But Helen herself is not going to be that easily reassured or comforted. She still hates herself. She recognizes her role in this whole thing, that she is at least partially complicit in all of the terrible things that have happened. Priam tries to tell her, you are not to blame for this war. The gods are. And he's definitely right about that. But Helen can't see the way that Priam does. Helen feels terrible guilt. And to some degree that guilt is warranted, and to some degree it isn't warranted. There are layers of truth here. It is true that the Greeks and Trojans are fighting over Helen, and that she is, in part, responsible for this whole conflict. If she had not been born, if she had never left with Paris, this wouldn't have happened. And her shame is real and right. But Priam is seeing an even deeper truth, that this is just the gods' doom, that none of them have any control of this situation, and as a consequence, none of them are guilty. Helen may have been shameless, we don't get a very clear indication whether she went with Paris willingly or not, in, at least thus far in the Iliad. And again, the tradition varies on this. Some say that Helen was raped and carried off. Some say that Helen went, like, totally uh, voluntarily because she hated Menelaus. Here, the, it seems more on the side of she left, you know, she did not leave Menelaus willingly. She regrets having done that. But it isn't clear whether... The, at the actual moment, she left willingly or unwillingly. Her regret seems to suggest that she's changed her mind since. That Helen originally saw Paris and how hot he was and how handsome he was and went away with him, probably with the help of Aphrodite. Like, in all likelihood, since Aphrodite is the one who's been complimented by Paris, and since Aphrodite is the one who told Paris that he could have Helen, Aphrodite probably got into Helen's brain and caused her to go off with him. You know, gave her the push she needed, shot her with those arrows of love. Take your pick. On some level, 
Helen was complicit. She did do this voluntarily. But again, free will is not a terribly robust concept in the Greek world. Aphrodite probably goaded Helen into this. And Helen now regrets the decision that she made, if decision it truly was. Priam says it was the gods first and foremost. You had very little to do with it. And he's absolutely right. Even more right than Helen accepting responsibility for this. But Helen's shame is a good thing. This is an indication that Helen is a woman with depth. A woman with ethics, with morals, with honor. She knows her position, and she's upset about it. And that is exactly what she should be doing in this situation. She should be mourning. She should be regretting. And she does. Homer's Helen is a really rich character in her own right. More than she is in many other stories about this war and this conflict. But let's jump ahead a bit, because we're quickly running out of time, and I definitely want to walk through the duel itself. So this is page 61. We've successfully done all of the sacrifices. Zeus has refused to hear them. They've done all the sort of, like, gathering around, making a circle, marking out the arena, and now we're ready to go. So this is page 61. They both Paris and Menelaus gear up. They put on their armor. Everyone's just sitting and staring. This is lines 368. They stood close closer in the measured arena, shaking their spears, half mad with jealousy. And then Paris threw. They drew lots, Paris gets to throw this first spear. So Paris throws. A long shadow trailed his spear as it moved through the air, and it hit the circle of Menelaus's shield, but the spear point crumpled against its tough metal skin. Notice what happens here. So Paris has his spear, he chucks his spear, Menelaus blocks it with his shield, and the spear just like bounces off against it. It crumples. This is typical of a Homeric conflict scene. Weapons in the Bronze Age are not terribly durable. Spear points and shields are pretty unreliable. Bronze is a soft metal, as metals go. Not nearly as hard and or brittle as iron. Definitely not near as strong and malleable as steel. Never mind some of the like more contemporary alloys that we've put together. Bronze can be gouged. Bronze can be crumpled, like just by having stuff hit it and just by like scratching it and stuff like that. You know, if you've ever had you know a bronze something in your house, it's probably fairly delicate as these things go. Definitely sturdier than you know glass or any number of things like that, but still not terribly strong. And this is something that we need to pay attention to. Notice that we have a bronze spear point coming into contact with a bronze shield, and the spear point crumples in this particular case. It was Menelaus's turn now, Homer goes on. And as he rose in his bronze, he prayed to Zeus, Lord Zeus, make Paris pay for the evil he's done to me. Smite him down with my hand so that men for all time will fear to transgress against the host's offered friendship. So he offers a prayer. Menelaus sees this as a holy fight that he is on. Paris betrayed his hospitality, something we'll talk about in much more detail when we get to the Odyssey. Therefore, Paris has violated the gods, violated good honor, and Paris must be punished for it. This is an opportunity for retribution. Menelaus is fighting for the gods here. 
With this prayer behind it, Menelaus' spear carried through Paris's polished shield and bored into the intricate breastplate, the point shearing his shirt and nicking his ribs as Paris twisted aside from black fatality. Notice the first spear bounced off of Menelaus' shield. The spear point crumpled. The weapon fell apart. Here we see the opposite thing happen. Paris puts up his shield, and Menelaus' spear goes right through it, cuts right through the bronze shield, shears through Paris' bronze armor, gets through even his tunic, his, his shirt, and even cuts Paris just a little bit. Like, only a flesh wound, not seriously injured. Paris is clearly not in any danger of death because he twisted away at the last moment from black fatality. But notice what Homer is sort of showing us here. This is how battles are frequently going to go down. Weapons are going to fail. Shields are going to fail. Armor is going to fail. This is an unpredictable world as far as conflict is concerned. Things do not happen consistently. Sometime the, sometimes the armor is going to deflect the weapons. Sometimes the weapons are going to shear right through the armor. Sometimes shots are going to go wild, sometimes shots are going to hit their mark, sometimes shots are going to completely fail because they just bounce off of whatever they're hitting. And notice that it just gets more chaotic from here. Menelaus drew his silver-hammered sword and came down with it hard on the crest of Paris's helmet, but the blade shattered into three or four pieces and fell from his hands. So Menelaus is like, all right, spears are out. Clearly nobody was killed by the spears. So he draws his sword, charges Paris, attacks him with the sword, and the sword shatters. Like, it breaks apart when it makes contact with the armor and with uh, Paris's helmet. So once again, like, we have this very unpredictable situation. Even the swords are not strong enough to consistently cut through things. Like, the spear points can crumple, the armor and shields can shear, the swords can break in your hands when they hit armor. And Menelaus groans. Notice his reaction. And looked up to the sky. Father Zeus, no god curses us more than you. I thought Paris was going to pay for his crimes, and now my sword has broken in my hands and my spears thrown away. I missed the bastard. Notice what Menelaus assumes about this conflict. So, Given the fact that these weapons and armor are unpredictable, they give way unexpectedly. Weapons break. Armor breaks. Like, none of this is consistent. Menelaus correctly assumes that this is the gods doing. That it is entirely the will of Zeus. So notice, like, play this back in your head as we sort of walk through this moment. Menelaus starts with a prayer. He says, okay, I am right here. I was a good host to Paris, I allowed him into my house, I gave him food, I gave him drink, I gave him hospitality, and Paris violated that, carried off my wife, betrayed me, and therefore I am in the right here. It is correct for me to kill Paris in this situation, the gods are behind me. And he prays, let my spear fly true, let me kill Paris, here and now. But he can't. Not because he, his strength fails, but because his weapons fail. Something that he couldn't predict, or command, or affect in any way. The gods totally sway the outcome of this duel. We know Menelaus is the stronger fighter. We know that he can kick Paris's butt. 
that Paris is just a pretty boy, just like Hector told us. Menelaus should win because of his own strength. Menelaus should win because the gods should be on his side. Everything points to Menelaus kicking Paris's butt here. But the weapons fail, for no fault of Menelaus's. It is therefore the gods that are deciding the outcome of this conflict, and indeed of every conflict. So when Menelaus's sword breaks apart, which, you know, is just the last straw here, Menelaus correctly says, this is your doom. No god curses us more than you. Now notice, Menelaus is not going to settle for this. Like, Menelaus has no weapons left. His sword is broken, his spear is broken, his, uh, is, like, gone. As Menelaus spoke, he lunged forward and twisted his fingers into the thick horsehair on Paris's helmet, pivoted on his heel, and started dragging him back to the Greeks. So, I don't care, I don't need weapons, we don't need to trust the gods at all, I am literally going to pick him up and drag him over to my side where we will have our way with him. But notice, even here, the gods intervene. The tooled leather chin strap of Paris's helmet was cutting into his neck's tender skin, and Menelaus would have dragged him all the way back and won no end of glory, but Aphrodite, Zeus's daughter, had all this in sharp focus and snapped the oxhide chin strap, leaving Menelaus clenching an empty helmet, which the hero, spinning like a discus thrower, heaved into the hands of the Greek spectators, then he went back for the kill. Even here, when Menelaus has Paris literally in his hands, as he's dragging him back, the chin strap of his helmet snaps, and Paris is released once more. The gods once again favor Paris over Menelaus. They once again sway the outcome of this battle. So Menelaus charges back for him, but here we get the even more dramatic intervention. But Aphrodite whisked Paris away with the slight of a goddess, enveloping him in mist, and lofted him into the incensed air of his vaulted bedroom. Then she went for Helen, and found her in a crowd of Trojan women high on the tower. And Aphrodite and, and Helen have this conference. Over here, Paris wants you to come home. He's propped up on pillows in your bedroom, so silky and beautiful you'd never think he'd just come from combat, but was going to a dance. Helen is upset, but she recognizes Aphrodite, which is itself rather unusual. And she says, you eerie thing, why do you love lying to me like this? Where are you taking me now? Phrygia and the beautiful Maonia, another city where you have some other boyfriend for me? Or is it because Menelaus, having just beaten Paris, wants to take his hateful wife back to his house, that you stand here now with treachery in your heart? Go sit by Paris yourself. Descend from the gods' high road. Allow your precious feet not to tread on Olympus. Go fret over him constantly. Protect him. Maybe someday he'll make you his wife, or even his slave. I'm not going back there. It would be treason to share his bed. The Trojan women would hold me at fault. I have enough pain as it is. And Aphrodite reciprocates, Don't vex me, bitch, or I may let go of you and hate you as extravagantly as I love you now. I can make you repulsive to both sides, you know, Trojans and Greeks, and then where will you be? Alright, there's a lot that we need to unpack there. First off, notice Menelaus is going back for the kill. He's got every possibility of, like, ending Paris once and for all. He's going to, like, strangle him on the spot. But Aphrodite intervenes and sweeps Paris out of the fight entirely. So once again, the gods rob Menelaus of his just reward. A justice that Menelaus himself associates with the gods. So Menelaus feels very gypped here. And rightly so. It was unfair for Paris to betray him in this way and get away scot-free. Menelaus, like Agamemnon, expects divine retribution. 
The gods should be pissed about this. And they're not. They let this happen. And in some fairly dramatic ways. Every time Menelaus tries to kill Paris, he can't. The spear doesn't go all the way, all the way through. The sword breaks in his hand. The chin strap snaps, releasing Paris from his grip. And then Aphrodite herself just whisks him away in a cloud or something. Menelaus is upset. Because this is not fair. He should have killed Paris with his own hands. He's definitely stronger. He's more capable. He's got justice on his side. Doesn't matter. The gods do what they want. But then we see Aphrodite and Helen. And Aphrodite and Helen have a very different relationship here. Menelaus is a good man petitioning the gods for good reasons to do his will, to back him up. But Helen insults Aphrodite to her face. Why do you love lying to me like this, she says. Where are you going to whisk me off now? Are you going to steal me away and just bury me in the middle of Anatolia? Are you, do you have some other boyfriend you're going to foist me off on? Why don't you go sleep with Paris? Why don't you go sit with him if you care about him so much? Maybe he'll marry you. Which is really insulting to a goddess. Goddesses do not marry mortals as a rule. And even when they do sleep with them, it's usually only on a fling. But that's complicated. We'll get into that more later. And notice that Aphrodite immediately responds in kind. Don't vex me, bitch, or I may let go of you and turn both the Greeks and Trojans against you. She threatens Helen. She's like, if you tick me off, I will make your life miserable. And you better believe she can. Like, Aphrodite, as much as she is not going to be ter terribly impressive in warfare, can definitely ruin your life. She'll make you fall in love with a sheep or something, and then you'll be, you know, very dishonorably engaged with said sheep for the rest of your career. Like, you do not cross her. But this is how she gets her job done. She saves Paris by basically cheating against all the rules of this arrangement, and then she gets Helen to do her bidding by threatening her. That sucks. And I want to emphasize this point. Just as we were saying, you know, we don't have any evidence the gods really are going to follow through with Agamemnon's, you know, hopes for retribution. Notice, if anything, the evidence is to the contrary. The gods are frequently betraying their own virtues, betraying their own principles. Zeus is supposed to protect strangers and those who give them hospitality, and yet he will not give Menelaus the satisfaction of victory. Menelaus fails to kill Paris when this is the moment when he should have been able to do that. Menel when, in fact, Menelaus has Paris like right where he wants him, Aphrodite continuously protects him. Spirits him off so Paris can't be hurt. The outcome of this battle is inconclusive because of the gods' interventions and interactions. This is why everybody is spending so much time paying attention to the gods. They are in control of the whole situation. Every aspect of this war is being fought with the gods frequently intervening. No one lives no one dies without the gods' permission. Because even spears and shields and armor and swords fail to do their job if the gods will it so. Swords break, spears crumple, shields are shorn through, chin straps of helmets snap at the most inopportune times because the gods have their favorites, because the gods have their agendas, 
because the gods do what they want. It's not fair. But it doesn't matter that it's not fair. Everything about the society is make the gods happy. Because happy gods are nice to you. And unhappy gods will screw you over. Now, admittedly, making sacrifices doesn't necessarily yield a result. Zeus rejects their sacrifice, rejects their whole plan, throws the entire duel into disarray. The whole thing is a complete non-starter, totally anticlimactic. Paris doesn't die. The Greeks, despite apparently winning, ultimately get no satisfaction because the fight just starts all over again. Because the gods decide. And the humans are powerless in front of them. The best they can do is make some sacrifices, pray frequently, and hope they don't get screwed. But they will. They'll inevitably get screwed. Because there are all these gods, and half of them are horrible, and they all have different agendas. They're all fighting against each other. Menelaus has Ares on his side. Everyone knows this. He is Ares' favorite. And yet, where is Ares? Why isn't Ares helping him here? Why isn't it Ares against Aphrodite? Because Ares doesn't care about him. Ares has his own agenda. Aphrodite is apparently the one who's running the show right now. Like Zeus even says, where were Hera and Athena during that fight? Why didn't you help Menelaus? Why didn't you help the Greeks? I thought you cared about them. But Hera has her own agenda. Nope, Menelaus has to lose this one because I don't want a bloodless victory. I want pain and death and suffering. Even though Zeus mentions, yeah, but the Trojans have always been good to us. It doesn't matter. It is totally unpredictable. The Greeks view fate and the gods as this very hostile, very unpredictable, very uncontrollable force in their lives. It is absolute. Even their minds are not safe, as we see when Athena like, convinces Pandarus to basically break the truce and set everybody back to fighting again. No one is safe here. So you do the best you can, cross your fingers, and hope. That's the best you've got. Agamemnon hopes for retribution with no evidence. Menelaus expected to kill Paris and couldn't because the gods kept getting in his way. Now, there's one last thing that I do want to mention about this passage, especially after our conversation last time and all the time I spent talking about, like, is Agamemnon a good leader? Is Agamemnon not a good leader? Once again, we're sort of faced with a fairly ambiguous Agamemnon's leadership passage, but this one does seem to land stronger on the side of Agamemnon here. Notice that Agamemnon spends basically the back half of Book 4 rousing the troops. Like, now that Menelaus has been shot by Pandarus, even though it is just a flesh wound, and, like, he immediately gets patched up, and he's, you know, out of the fighting for now, but still no big deal. Um, Agamemnon starts by insulting all of the various, like, commanders and getting them to fight for him. You know, gee, Odysseus, I didn't think you would be the one to hang back like a coward when there was fighting to be done. Like, oh my gosh, look at the eight, look at Diomedes sitting here like a wimp. It wasn't like Tydeus to counter cower like this, he says around line nine or three ninety-seven. Um, Agamemnon spurs up the troops. And I want to emphasize this dynamic here. Like, we've very much been stressing that a lot of the troops resent Agamemnon. That Agamemnon may not be a terribly good leader. That Achilles himself like calls Agamemnon out 
and nobody seems to be quick to stand up for Agamemnon here, with the exception of Nestor, who's like, maybe you guys should just make peace with each other. Agamemnon, you're wrong for treating Achilles like he's an upstart. Achilles, you're wrong for treating Agamemnon as anything but a good general. Notice that Agamemnon's style of generalship is apparently being an ass. And I want to kind of stress this, because this is subtle in Homer. But it is very significant to Agamemnon's character in the way that they treat him, and probably helps to explain the fact that he comes off like a dick in this book more often than not, but still the Greeks seem to respect him. Agamemnon gets shit done by being hated, by insulting his own troops, by having them mad at him. Like, he's like, hey, Diomedes, son of Tydeus, your dad never would have cowered like this in the back lines. And Diomedes is just, like, sullenly taking it. But he's like, all right, I'm going to totally show this guy. Like, good grief, coward, I'll show him a coward. I'm going to, like, friggin' wreck those Trojans. And, spoiler alert, next chapter, he totally does. Agamemnon, by being the, the general who everybody hates uses that reputation to get people to do stuff for him by getting them to show off to him. I'm no coward, Agamemnon. I will fight. And they did. And Agamemnon gets his way. It's kind of brilliant. Sneaky, sort of clever. Like the professor who, you know, sort of antagonizes you in class and gets you to work harder than you would otherwise. Not that I'd ever do that, mind you. Good grief. I could not possibly do something so manipulative and, you know, awful. But nonetheless, it works. By the end of this scene, everybody is fighting. Everybody's in the front lines again. Trojans or Greeks are fighting like nothing has happened. The whole duel thing totally falls apart. Not consequential, despite the fact that we were guaranteed that winner was going to take on. And so we start fighting in earnest again. And we get some legit battle scenes and some pretty, like, awful deaths. Like, I'm particularly fond of the one where the spear goes through the guy's temples and, like, he falls over, and, like, as everything goes black. That's pretty hardcore. You're going to get a lot of hardcore gore and death in this book, so be aware of that. Um, for next time, we've got two of the most important chapters, two of my favorite chapters to talk about, the Iliad Book 5 and the Iliad Book 6. We will spend some time seeing Diomedes have a good day, wrecking his way through the Trojans, and we're going to see Hector go home and start having chats with some of the folks back in his city. Should be a good conversation, lots to talk about. Enjoy your reading, and I'll talk to you again soon.